And speaking as a formula, former developer, we are not humans. So <laughs> that, that is counterintuitive to everything that they want to do. He said it, ladies and gentlemen, not me. He said <laughs> that, it. That's right. You could restore it all. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me the proud owner of a yeared Persona Maliandi. How's it going, Persona? <laughs> I'm good, Curtis. How's it going? Yes, so, I finally made it to one year. So a yeared is a one-year beard. Ugh. So since the pandemic, I have not shaved. And I don't think there's a term for not cutting your hair either for a year, which I've also accomplished. That's just... I, I I would literally get thrown out of my house if I did either of those things. My wife. <laughs> I'm, I've been pretty yeah. close to being thrown out of the house a couple of times, but I think now it's gotten to the point where it's. Where's your hair at this point? Like lengthwise. Lengthwise, it's probably, oh, I don't know, like five inches, Pat? six inches below my shoulder. Okay. Wow. I, I've literally never had my hair that long in my life. <laughs> um, I've, I've. I've I've had my my hair gets really wavy when it's long. Well, it used to get really wavy when I had hair. <laughs> and and I've never grown more. I think I the most I've grown out maybe maybe a like six weeks, and then I just you can't stand it anymore. Yeah, I can't stand it anymore. And my wife doesn't like it. And you know, and well, you know that throws away a lot of things. Well, we have uh, we have a new guest. Uh, he's, he's new to this podcast. Uh, I actually had him a couple of times on the Druva podcast. Actually, before we get to our guest, I'll throw out our disclaimer. Prasanna and I do both work for Druva. This is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are ours. And also, uh, remember to rate us uh, at uh, ratethispodcast.com slash restore. And we would love to have you on. If you like backups, we like you. So, you know, if, you, if you've got a small backup environment, a big backup environment, we don't care. You know, again, we work for Druva. We talk about competitors for Druva all the time. So if you love your backup product, if you hate them, yeah, I mean, it's more likely they hate them. I mean, let's just face it. Everybody hates their backup products. But it doesn't even have to be about backups either, right? If you're in the data protection or yeah, security data protection, space, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, security, you know, we, we've done a lot. Of, I mean, we've covered COVID. Right. Um, which is not really, uh, but that was more uh, necessity, I think. Yeah. But yeah, da data protection, data security, um, you know, anything that we can sort of basically uh, come back to uh, protecting the data and uh, disaster recovery. We've had a couple of DR stories on those were great. Uh, so, yeah. So um, any of those things, if, if you want to come on the podcast, just uh, drop a note to wcurtispresson at gmail.com. And I will make it happen. Speaking of which, that's how sort of how we got our, our next guest. We I was looking for somebody to cover containers. We've we've covered containers and Kubernetes. We've covered them on uh, this podcast a couple of times. The thing about Kubernetes is it's just so constantly evolving that that you really need somebody that's actively involved in that to to really speak to it. And 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 I think and I can I can think of no better person to do that than our upcoming guest. He is a field CTO at SHI International. Welcome to the podcast, Russ Cantwell. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, uh, uh, Prasanna, I actually, it, 
This is the longest my beard's ever been. It is not a year. <laughs> in. Um, I was uh, I've been sick, you know, the last month, kind of dealing with some some COVID issues, and uh, for two weeks I basically laid on a couch and I oh, didn't man. shave. And so my wife uh, said, you know, hey, why don't you just see what that's like? Uh, mm. you know, grow that out a little bit. And so I, I have been. Um, I, I actually have been every week. I'll sort of trim it to make it even, but I, I do it like one notch up. So like last time I shaved, this was with like a seven or something like that. And so I'm just kind of keeping it trimmed up and, and neat as it grows out and, and gets a little thicker, but this is about a month ish. So your wife, is, your wife is beard curious is what it sounds she like. She is beard curious. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Interesting. See, like I've never gone clean shaven in probably about 15 years. I've always had a beard of some sort or other, yeah. usually on the shorter end. But yeah, this is the first time it's gotten you, this this long. And the best thing I could tell you, Russ, is don't give up. It will get itchy. It will feel like it's a pain, but don't give in. <laughs> <laughs> and Sounds yeah, because Prasanna, you you and your wife have been together for how long? And you said she's uh, you said she's seen you clean shaven like once or something. Yeah, well, more than ten years. And yeah, I think she's only seen me with clean shaven once. And does she run so. a fe- a feared? I think it was basically, yeah, when are you going to grow back your beard? (laughs) That's interesting. But uh, Russ, I wanted to, uh, you mentioned that you had COVID and we actually had to, we, we, we had you scheduled to record a few weeks ago and you were like, yeah, I got, I got the vid. So what, um, what was that like for you? I, I know that it's, it's all over the range in terms of different people and different experiences, how how is it for you and your family? Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, that's for sure. The way I've described it for myself uh, is, I don't know that I've heard it described this way. So it could have been a unique experience for me. So I, in the last month or so, because we have been sick for the better part of a month, but we, we kind of had a week or so in between where we felt better and then we got worse again. But over that time, we have, or at least for me, I have experienced basically every symptom of illness that I've ever had in my life, sort of in a staggered way over the weeks. So I've, you know, I've had a cold, I've had a sore throat, I've had what felt like an ear infection, but actually ultimately wasn't, um, ironically. Uh, And then I've had, I've had chills and aches and all just all sorts of different things, none of which were the worst that I've ever felt. Um, the sinus infection side of it maybe was pretty close to the worst that I've ever felt. And I've kind of been dealing with some bronchitis now for a while. I'll have probably have to go on mute during this podcast to, to deal with that. So that's kind of been my longest prolonged issue. But nothing has been overtly bad other than those first two weeks where it was a horrible sinus infection. Dealing with some fatigue, but the type of fatigue I've dealt with has been very explicit fatigue. So right now I'm sitting in my chair. I'm talking with you. I'm operating my computer. None of this causes me any fatigue, any shortness of breath at all. But if I were to go walk up these stairs behind me and then come back down, I would immediately be fatigued, or at least that's how it's been for the last month, and my heart rate would be increased. And so it's been pretty crazy, uh, just kind of the way I've felt over the last month. And my wife has been similar, although she's way worse off because she is pregnant and she cannot take anything at all oh, no. while she's pregnant, other than I think Benadryl and uh, and maybe Sudafed. I think those are the two things mm-hmm. and Tylenol. Those are the three things you're allowed to take when you're pregnant. So it's it's been a, an interesting thing, especially with a two year old 
who was also sick at the beginning of this, but very quickly uh, sort of got over it and has been blissfully living as though nothing <laughs> is happening in the world <laughs> right. and we've been having to chase her around. So it's it's ah, been an kids. interesting last month. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and you do do you think you're I mean at this point you're on the back side of things but you but you don't know like how long the symptoms are going to last. Yeah, we're definitely well past um the worst of this. We're both back to kind of working fully although I, I never leave my house for work at least since right. since COVID. Traditionally I would I would fly all over the country. Uh but my wife does. So my wife normally she she manages these imaging centers all over the North DFW Metroplex. And so she's normally out and there and, you know, dealing with all of the things the medical industry has to deal with. And she hasn't been for the last month. I mean, she hasn't left here. So she hasn't gotten back to normal, although she officially can as of tomorrow. So as of tomorrow, um, we'll all be past our sort of two-week period, which I actually learned, by the way, is actually 10 days. So 10 days from the start of your symptoms is when the viral load is supposedly low enough to where your likelihood of, you know, giving it to someone else is mm -hmm. dramatically lower. So two days is, is a little bit of a stretch goal, but 10 days is what we were told. Now we're, we're still here two weeks later and we haven't gone out or done anything in, in that manner. Uh, but yeah, that was news to me was the 10 day mark that our doctors gave us, um, that we needed to sort of be separate. So right. that was, that was an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, and doing that with a two year old, um, you know, like both of yes. you being sick and dealing with a two-year-old that is just living the time of her life, you know. <laughs> just doesn't even know what being sick is is like. <laughs> Luckily, you know, we had uh, – we've got Toy Story, <laughs> and uh, she loves Toy Story. So she she's just running around watching that. The struggle is right now she also loves to play Ring Around the Rosie. Oh. And she likes to play that with uh, no one more than her daddy. Oh, so it's a lot of spinning and, uh, you know, I, I'd have to do those in short bursts, but now, <laughs> now I can do them just fine. No problem. Lots of ring around the Rosie the last few days since we've been feeling better. Well, I'm glad you're on the up and up now. So yeah. That's good. Me too. Uh, you and me both. I appreciate it. Um, and, uh, here, here's my parental advice. Uh, Raya, the new movie on Disney plus. Yeah. Good movie. Little intense. Okay. We actually, by the way, um, uh, persona my daughter decided to let my seven-year-old granddaughter watch it and she mm. loved it uh, we were a little oh, concerned okay. it was even too intense for her because she can she can get upset at certain things and you know there's this sort of it, it, there it, there's a corona actual parallel in the storyline basically they actually rewrote oh. the storyline to there's this faceless purple electrified cloud sort of creature that when it hits you, it turns you into stone. Uh, so it's kind of like Corona, you know? Uh, and then in order to defeat this this thing, they all had to like cooperate and get along. Uh, so yeah, so th there's some parallels there, but it but it's it's pretty intense. And the, I was telling my daughter, warning her, because I, I said, you know how like in Les Mis, have you, see, have you ever seen Les Mis? Yeah. Okay. So you know how like almost everybody dies. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, it's I do. Kind of like that. Like literally, like every <laughs> character that you think about, you know, that you care about, essentially sort of turns to stone at some point in the movie. So, oh boy, if that's yeah, maybe gonna, we'll stick to Toy Story. Yeah, for now. maybe you'll stick to Toy Story for, and not Toy Story three. Have you seen Toy Story three? 
Three and four are both depressing. Yeah, well, yes. the, the three I think is the one uh-huh. where where they have the where the the um the toys are about to be they go into an incinerator. <laughs> yep, <laughs> they're literally about to just be burned and die. Yeah, it's just, it definitely gets intense. My daughter actually goes, "Oh no, Woody, Buzz!" Like that's what yeah. she says oh, so whenever cute. that part comes up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, let's, let's move on to some, some more fun topics, you know, and, and talk about Kubernetes and containers, uh, you know, certainly one of your favorite subjects. Oh, yes. So, um, so. you know, we've, we've had you on the, on the Druva podcast, uh, but th- this is your first time here. Where do you think we should start, uh, you know, when discussing Kubernetes and containers and, 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 uh, data protection, where do you think would be a good, good place to start? Uh, the, the best place to start is probably at the beginning, meaning what what decision you first have to make. And I will tell you that when I work with uh, customers or I just have conversations just in the industry in general, uh, I usually have to discuss the merit of data protection in the Kubernetes space. Mm. Uh, even when I can, I, I say even, maybe especially, I spend most of my time sort of consulting with other executive leadership within, you know, our customer base around mm-hmm. the country. And usually whenever we're talking about their plans, they have already been told or informed by their teams that they're going to make a move to containers, which are more than likely going to be orchestrated by Kubernetes. And that a lot of the things that they did before, they no longer need to do. And that's always a sort of a difficult road for us to kind of come to early in a conversation but it is one it's it's one where you have to challenge and there are there are scenarios by the way where that is actually true but you really need a customer to convince you that that is the case that they have architected their infrastructure and their applications and structured their data in a way to where <clears throat> the way you protect uh, data or applications can be very specific to their scenario. Most people are not in that scenario, but if they are, they can they can drive you that direction. Good. So, is it a little like when people first started moving to the cloud? They were like, "Hey, you don't necessarily need backup. Cloud is awesome. Cloud is great. Why do you need backups?" Or when people started looking at like Microsoft 365 and Salesforce and other SaaS applications, it is. Yeah, I, it, it's it's a perfect parallel. In fact, you know, I was describing this, we were discussing, it's not really related to Kubernetes, although Kubernetes will have a big space in this, in particular, keys, K, K3S, uh, a slightly drawn down version of Kubernetes. If we were talking edge computing with uh, a couple of my peers in the organization, and, and we were really having a healthy debate on it. And the number one thing that I was trying to get across was, I wanted to avoid treating edge the same way a large amount of people treated the public cloud whenever that first emerged on the scene. And what I mean by that is, is I didn't want people to call edge just another cloud, just like a lot of people in the data center called the cloud, just another data center. I, that mentality, I think really bit a lot of people uh, and they, and they didn't, when they didn't approach things correctly and it took a long time for us to get through that. And I think, you know, for the most part, we're through that. We still have some people that sort of hold on to that school of thought, but it is definitely not true 
Uh, and, I, and I don't know what the answer is for Edge, but I, I want to avoid going in with a very closed-minded way of, well, the thing I've always done is the way things are always going to be, and so we don't need to worry about doing things differently, uh, which is you know a, a, a scary spot to be in if you're if you're leading a technology organization. And I think that's an important part. It's not necessarily that how I did things before is how I should do things in the future, but I think it still holds true, though. Some of those requirements, which led to how I do things, may still apply in the future as well, right, in the Absolutely. new infrastructure, be it in the cloud or the edge or in Kubernetes or whatever it is, right? There's some of those fundamental requirements are still there around compliance and data protection, restore capabilities, and all the rest. 100%. Yeah, that, that stuff doesn't change, no matter where you move your data or who's providing your service. Yeah. So what, why do you think, well, I, what, what is it about Kubernetes and containers that they think that it won't need data protection? That's a, that's a great question. And I can tell you it's rooted in sort of the basis with which Kubernetes came to be. <clears throat> I think most containers, you know, were designed, at least initially, to be ephemeral. In, in nature, right? So the assumption is, is that whatever I build, I can, I can use automation to rebuild in the event it goes away. And the things that I lose when they go away are inconsequential because they are not stateful in nature or whatever that might be. And in many respects, the things you would use containers for in the earliest days of them, or if you think about, for instance, Google's use of containers, which, you know, they invented Kubernetes, so they're usually a really good example, although most companies will not operate like Google does. Uh, you know, every time you spin up a search, runs inside of a container, right? right. Uh, that is spun up not by Kubernetes, but by something very similar in its nature. And so the idea there is that is minimally critical information, right? Like you don't necessarily need searches saved in a full state at all times, although your browser usually remembers these things. Google's actually back in search is, is not worried about saving that. That data, once it goes away, it can go away. You can always recreate that search without any issue whatsoever. And if you have designed an application, your data set and your infrastructure in a way that behaves like that, and you brought that argument to me, I would be very comfortable with you not worrying about protection, but most people right. haven't got of, of that of that part of the app, but the whatever's the data that's providing the data to that app, or the, the app that's providing the data to that app, that app needs to be protected, whatever that is, that may or may not be in Kubernetes, right? Absolutely. And in the way I describe it, you know, we've I've had uh, my bosses came to me one time. He was going to have a conversation, I think, with some some more of our executive leadership on the merits of uh, Kubernetes and, and how applications traditionally get used in containers and what happens here. And so I, I gave him a very simple example of a very traditional three-tier application where you have the front end of the application is maybe some form of web interface. You know, it's a user interaction scenario that feeds and pipes data through middleware and back into a database of some kind. And that database persists state for whatever that information entering is that you do inside the website. The web interface at the front end of that application has probably been stateless since its inception. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's potentially true of the last 25 years. But And so that's a, a great candidate for containerization if you want to build something that has that. But the back-end version of that, if you provide state into the containers uh, for access to that database, or in some scenarios, databases actually run in containers, you need to control and manage that state. And when you start building applications that rely on the front-end interaction, 
the backend saving of state, a bunch of different variables that are broken off across it. Uh, we call these Kubernetes objects. Now, all of a sudden, you have to do things more than just protect the data inside of volumes. You may need to protect config state, um, etcd inside of uh, Kubernetes. You may need to, you know, have stateful sets, deployments, persistent volumes, namespaces, secrets. I mean, there's a lot of different pieces that make up an actual application right. inside of Kubernetes. And you need to start saving things like that at their point in time and be able to restore at different point in times or recover in another area. So there's a lot of reasons why the way you design a holistic application around Kubernetes and the way data is presented inside of it, where you may need to protect more than just the data sets behind it. You need to protect the things that, that wrap themselves around it. Yeah, and I makes... think, okay, go ahead. And I think one of the things that Kubernetes, at least from my understanding it sort of has this application first sort of definition, right? Versus oh, yeah. like if you were doing things in like virtual machines, right? You just have a bunch of VMs. You don't know how they're all connected or related together. Kubernetes kind of forces the application developer to define the relationships between these objects. So you now can understand, okay, all of these components really are needed for this application, which is, I think, actually great from a data protection side, because now you can actually understand what is this application and what are all the pieces I need to grab in order to back it up. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and, you know, it's you mentioned the the way the application is defined. It's incredibly important whenever you're considering the way Kubernetes works. So, you know, Kubernetes, when someone is first learning it, they, they usually get two things compared to pretty consistently. And I do this as well, just because it's helpful to be to relate things. So people will say a container is like a lightweight VM and Kubernetes is like a different form of vCenter that controls those VMs. This is an incredibly imprecise, <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, it, yeah. but it holds true to like where you're trying to correlate their, you know, relation, at least the relation between Kubernetes and the container. Now the relation between a VM and a container is, is a dramatically different comparison, but they are levels of abstraction. And so once you get past that, it start, it's easier to start understanding how you think differently about Kubernetes. And that is all about application definition. And even presenting storage inside of Kubernetes, if you were to ask me, how do you do this right? There's there's a few people out there who, who've done it right. Some have kind of withered away and you know they, they don't exist anymore, or they've turned into something else, or they've been acquired. One of my favorite ones was actually acquired relatively recently. Uh, the company is called Portworks. Mm -hmm. And the thing that Portworks does very, very interestingly is they treat storage inside of Kubernetes as an application. So mm. they can use anything on the back end. They could use Pure. They could use NetApp. If Druva made a production storage appliance, they could use Druva's production storage appliance. And they can do any of those things. They can use any of those to provision the volumes. But the way they present the infrastructure to the app is viewed as an application. And so it starts the storage and the provisioning of the infrastructure becomes part of the awareness of the application and the way you construct everything at the creation of the Kubernetes cluster and the application that's running on top of it. So it's it's very different. So when you say you view it from the application standpoint, that's incredibly pertinent to literally every aspect of Kubernetes and the way it works. How many, so Kubernetes has a pod, right? Indeed, it does. Okay, and is is it objects? Are objects? This is the first time I've ever. Well, I'm a, the term objects you used earlier, 
objects are what go in a pod, right? Uh, objects are almost anything that would make up your requirements to run a an application inside of Kubernetes. So, and the, so pods are really a, a namespace abstraction that usually hosts a container. So, for the easiest way to think about it, assume that a pod is a container. In reality, what it is is a pod runs a container. The pod is the thing that holds it. So, if you were to imagine, and once again, this will be an, an inexact analogy but the the layering will work. When you think about a a VM, a VM will run an operating environment, right? right? Think of the container kind of as the operating environment and the pod as the VM. If you think about that, you'll realize that the thing that Kubernetes is actually controlling is the pod. And then you have defined the container that runs within the pod. And you can run multiple containers in one pod, so that's where things start getting really dicey, but that's not really a best practice. Traditionally, we don't do that. However, you will run different things. So let's just pretend you'll hear these things called sidecar um, containers, and that usually means a second or tertiary container running inside of a pod that presents another service to the primary container that's running. So think of like uh, a connection or or networking mesh like Istio will run as a sidecar container inside of a pod. So you'll have two containers inside of one pod. One is providing the application-specific process that is required for that particular instance. The other is running the sidecar Istio mesh in order to be able to communicate in whatever direction you need to communicate with that mesh. And so pods are another abstraction layer, but they are a function of Kubernetes and not of the containers. Um, the best way to okay. think is a correlation of one-to-one. -one. Okay. So normally it's one-to-one, -one, which is, I guess, for those of us that aren't living it day-to-day, -day, the idea of a pod that consists of only one thing sounds odd, but... <laughs> it does. <laughs> yes, it is okay. very odd. But um, it's the way we live our life. Okay. So the application consists of one or more pods and and uh, and where would you use the term object in that regard uh in this particular case the the pod and the associated container would be one of the many objects that okay. make up the application what would the, the other objects uh it could be a couple different things it could be the the consistency of the application um the container granularity the automation around it the namespace that ties into it the etcd configuration that's saved you will define all of the objects that go into an application for Kubernetes inside of the manifest file. So whenever you're describing them, you're thinking of resource requirements, volumes that attach, uh, the the different SLAs that you would define with inside of it. So for instance, to give you an, an indication, when you were to, if you were to make an application and then you were going to compile it into a container, you'll have these different layers within the container that you have. That's actually what Docker really brought to us with it was these layers. Think of like an OSI model, but for applications. You have multiple layers. You can switch them in and out sort of uh, interoperably without affecting the other layers. So those different layers inside of there would be objects within inside of the container. The container itself is an object. These things make up the application. So once you've defined that, that then gets piped into Kubernetes, and then Kubernetes follows the rules that you have set in the manifest file. So you might say, I need to be on a host that has this amount of available resources of X, you know, RAM, CPU, disk, whatever it might be. And then Kubernetes goes, and I, I would like to say intelligently places these <laughs> things, but really Kubernetes is like, 
I can't remember who said it. I wish I could provide them credit, but I've, I've always loved this analogy. But it's like playing darts with your eyes closed and your dart is your is your you know pod or your container and kubernetes is the dartboard you're just kind of throwing it at the host that kubernetes is guessing and it lands there and it says you know what this actually isn't quite right so let's kill that one and throw it somewhere else there's really not a significant amount of elegant intelligence that goes into it but you define the objects and the variables all within that manifest file and then they all break apart and run across the cluster and here's the kicker if you want to create a backup of that that is usable in any way, shape, or form that doesn't require you to completely rebuild everything that you're doing, uh, then you need to understand all of those. So I'll just start naming some things that I would consider to be objects. It'd be like namespaces, persistent volumes, and their claims. Those are actually two different things. So persistent volumes are the actual physical volume. The claim is a request that comes from Kubernetes to handle. Uh, you would have deployments, stateful sets, what else we have? Config maps, secrets. Secrets are a big part because they tie directly to the application piece itself. Daemon sets, service accounts, roles, cluster roles, ingress, certain CRDs, so custom resource definitions that you have inside of the application. Those are all examples of what I would consider to be objects with inside of an application that is defined in Kubernetes. And you need to capture all of those in order to have you know an, a very traditional term, an application-consistent backup. So if you right. want to have that, you need to capture all of those things. And and even if even if most you know of those objects are stateless in nature, uh, you're going to want to capture the fact that you're using all of those objects in a given application, yep. so that if and when you need to bring that application back, you 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 what you know all the you know what all the objects are. And where they go and all of that, right? Yeah. You just want them all to be application aware and be able to bring them up. Especially, you know, people talk a lot about the the mobility of Kubernetes. And don't get me wrong. It's real. Like, if you have, in theory, if you have your manifest file, your data, and an operating environment, you could deploy whatever application you've defined theoretically anywhere. But there are, as we all know, in production, a significant amount of other variables that go into this. How does load balancing work within the, inside the cluster or within inside the application if it's defined that way? You know, how are all of these resources being allocated? Are there are you using different providers for it? Are the APIs different? Did did you do one on one version of Kubernetes that was using a FlexVol driver upstream for storage instead of the CSI? I mean. There's all sorts of things that, yeah, and that happens, it makes it so way, complicated, though, thing. right? Yes. Well, it's complicated for two reasons. One, because it's awesome, and awesome things are complicated. <laughs> That's true. And the other reason is, is because Kubernetes is the least opinionated space I've ever worked with, ever in my entire career. Uh, there's, it's evolving so so very quickly, uh, and I think most people that are very heavy in the space, even heavier than I am, I've I've had some involvement with the project. Uh, in particular, the the one release that I have actually worked directly on was 1.19. So that was actually last year. Um, the Kubernetes may disappear at some point in time in the relatively near future, say five, 10 years, because Kubernetes is a platform to build other platforms on. And once again, that's not a saying that I have. I think you would see that from the Kelsey Hightowers of the world, uh, the Chad Sackages of the world. It, we would all agree that Kubernetes is one of these things that is there for us to go build 
the next great platform on. You can think of serverless Lambda functions, Azure functions, whatever you want to call them, as, as option or platforms that were built on top of containerization types of technology in order to be enabled. So there's going to be a lot more platforms that I come think, out yeah. there to where the nerds like us that know things about Kubernetes will be like, hey, you know how that works? And the people who are using it will look at us and just say, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what's coming in, yeah, in the next yeah. you know few years. Any more than you know, when I do a Google search, it, it starts a container that I need to know that, right? Um, yeah, and it's been doing that for <laughs> so you, 20 years. In the midst of, I'm going to actually, I'm going to. I know you talked earlier about Flexvol and then you mentioned CSI. What is CSI? Yeah, the, the CSI is the container storage interface. Uh, and this is actually a critical function uh, with inside of Kubernetes. Technically, it's <laughs> technically it's not inside of Kubernetes. It's external to Kubernetes, and that's what makes it critical. Uh, FlexVol was the original way that we provisioned volumes with inside of Kubernetes. It was an upstream line of code, meaning that it had to be tested with any form of change of Kubernetes ever. Uh, it was very complicated. It instituted a risk within uh, within what it did. Basically, if Kubernetes changed and Flexball didn't change appropriately, that driver would affect any of your workloads. And this deals directly with storage. And if you're dealing with storage, you're dealing with data. Dealing with data, you're probably dealing with state. And it's very serious. So CSI was cre created as a external to the tree plugin that you would use in order to provision storage external to clusters and then provide them into Kubernetes with a common set of APIs and drivers that all of the different storage vendors around the industry could get involved in. So you can think of EMC and Pure and NetApp and, and, and data protection providers. Anyone who needs to call an API that is related to storage and data with inside of Kubernetes will now do so with a standard set of working tools that is not upstream with Kubernetes. It sits external to it, calling into standard APIs. Uh, and you can write to those as opposed to having to write directly into the mainline project, uh, which is how we did it yeah. uh, so, at the beginning. So that's what CSI does. So having been in the storage industry for quite a while and working with NetApp and EMC, right? If I go back and think back in the day, right, you would have SMIS, you had Flexvols, right? All of these technologies and that vendors and platforms try to make standardized that never kind of really worked out. Is there something that CSI is different in your mind that will make this better? <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, one, it is now a requirement uh, if you're going to actually be playing in the Kubernetes space. And I, and I think most people would agree that Kubernetes, in whatever form you ultimately consume it, is inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, I do believe most people use it in some instances. And the best leading indicator of that is the fact that VMware went and made a change to where you know, you can manage ESXi, ESXi nodes as a managed Kubernetes namespace, not the other way around. Um, they, they actually decided to inherit Kubernetes management functions directionally at VMware as opposed to VMware manages Kubernetes functions. So that's a huge I, leading indicator. Yeah, in that's space. it's interesting because I, I remember the first time I heard about containers at VMware and basically their solution to containers was a VM that would run a container for you, right? Yeah, which which has a lot of benefits, by the way. Um, they created Photon OS, mm -hmm. 
uh, Photon OS was kind of the original kind of container uh, image OS that, that they were working on to be able to provide to run inside of VMware. I actually don't know if that still functions. I, Myself and uh, the two people we run our podcast with, we made a video on it years ago. It was actually our most popular video we ever made for our, our short educational video series that we were making back in the day. And uh, it, it morphed over time, but I will tell you that the conversation between well, do I run bare metal Kubernetes or do I run a Kubernetes cluster inside of VMware or AHV or KVM or whatever it is that your hypervisor abstraction layer of choice would be? Became very interesting, especially whenever uh, VMware made their announcements. I will tell you that a lot of people still run our containers in VMs. Uh, In fact, I would argue that most containers are deployed with inside of VMs in the world. And there's a lot of benefits. Some of them are for resource bin packing purposes. Other ones are for security purposes and isolation because, like I said, Kubernetes is is not an actor on like hardware translation in a way that helps you manage resources. It's very rudimentary in that manner. Uh, it doesn't help manage NUMA drivers very well for memory translation, for instance. Like Linux doesn't do a good job of that. Guess who does? VMware. Hmm. So these are the types of things that you gain from running inside of a hypervisor. Uh, isolation, security, resource bin packing, et cetera, are all better but inside you, of a hypervisor than they are in bare metal. You wouldn't do a, a this is a, <clears throat> a statement in the form of a question. You you wouldn't <laughs> do a one-to-one though, right? You wouldn't do a, a container, like a container inside a VM. I mean, you, you, you know, could, but- Most people wouldn't. Um, I think you could. It's interesting. Well, it this just seems like it would, it would go against the the things that they talk about, like many of the benefits of containers that they're so lightweight and all that. If every container spins off its own VM, why would you do that? So let me ask you a question. For inside of a virtualized environment, where does the weight come from? Because people describe containers as lightweight VMs, right? Mm-hmm. How heavy is a VM? Where's the weight come from? The well, answer would... is not the VM itself. It's the operating environment. Correct. Yeah. Windows is heavy. You know, Linux is less less heavy. Uh, so if you, if you took a VM, if you just started a VM, right? If you started a hardware translation layer is what I'll define a VM as. If you did that and you had no operating environment in it, you could run it on an NL SAS drive and it'd start up in a 10th of a second. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't, I mean, it just, it would be incredibly simple to have that up and running, but the operating environment you run inside of it is critical. That's actually why windows containers aren't very good right now. You took, take the traditional uh, image that we'd use for a container and it's, you know, a couple hundred megs, 250 to 500 megs, probably, on average, just a guess. But the uh, a Windows container image, smallest one I've seen, and granted, I haven't ran one in probably a year. It's like six gigs, six and a half <laughs> gigs, something like that. So it's, it's a dramatically different experience. In fact, we see a lot of people moving to running SQL on Linux to be able to leverage more containerized instances, just because containers have been around in Linux for 15 to 20 years at this point with LXC. So they're not a new construct. They they were born in Linux. So they're very native to that platform. Uh, Windows is very much so sort of adopting uh, the framework in and of itself. So the operating environment is very key. So if you're running an incredibly efficient operating environment, I'll use Photon as an example, even though I don't even know if it's an option anymore. But let's just use Photon because that was what VMware was working on for a while. If you were to spin up one 
container and one VM running Photon, you would have had a 300 meg image running in all of these VMs. And you could have theoretically run, you know, millions of them in an area where you normally would have run maybe hundreds of, of traditional VMs. So it's very important to understand that the VM itself, not heavy, the operating environment is is the big piece. And for containers, they are functionally small bits and pieces of an operating environment. They really only need certain processes from a kernel and the namespace that you get from the kernel presented inside the operating system to provide whatever process is, is going to be provided for an application. So it's just... Think of a container as a small chunk of an operating system. And if you can do that with inside of a VM, you could theoretically do the same thing as a container. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see. In fact, Google has something called GVisor, which is kind of just the isolation components of a VM in order to, to better create uh, a security scenario. In fact, Kata containers would be the probably the originator of that idea where they where they virtualize every one of their containers in order to create better security practices around them. So, so it's not you, unheard of. It can be done. So do you think, like you were mentioning, going forward, it's really important to have that um, abstraction layer or the platform, if you will, that understands how to deal with the translation um, and that Kubernetes is more sort of an application that runs on top of whatever the hypervisor or component underlying platform is? Yeah, right, I just think... in order to be most efficient or to not have to or to get the benefit of both worlds, right? Like you were saying, security, dealing with Numa, everything else, right? Hypervisors are typically better at versus um, Kubernetes, where you get the benefits of the containers and the lightweight running and all the rest. So kind of marrying the two worlds together. I think the, the general answer is going to be yes. The, the real answer is going to be it depends because <laughs> we're horrible people. And that's that's just what we say to all of everyone who wants an easy answer. But I will tell you, most people, the answer will be yes. Uh, the most important thing about running Kubernetes is in my, this is my opinion, not that of SHIs, uh, is going to be in order, to, is, is going to be best to use a distribution. So if you use a distribution of Kubernetes, you're going to get a more opinionated way about the best way to run that. So that would be PKS from VMware, which I don't believe they even call it that anymore. Tanzu Kubernetes Grid would maybe be a more appropriate uh, way to phrase that. OpenShift from uh, Red Hat, now owned by IBM, GKE, AKS, um, EKS. There's there's a lot of different ones out there, but you would want to leverage what I call a distribution in order to consume Kubernetes the best way. That will probably be inside of a VM, but you'll have a lot of guidance on the best way to run those things. And here's what I don't want people to do. when you The reason why I use the word distribution, and I think it's starting to take on, I think other people are leveraging that now as well, is I think of like the first time I compiled Slackware, you know, <laughs> and, and what that was like. And the fact, you know, I've compiled, compiled Linux kernels over the years. I've, I've made tweaks to them myself, especially for Android ROMs back in the day. Um, I use Linux on my home computer. It's just something I've done for a long time. But I run Pop! OS from System76. That is an Ubuntu-based distribution that they build explicitly for their systems and for the community, who, whoever wants to use it. I don't go compile my own version of whatever form of Linux I want to do. I use a distribution. And rolling your own Kubernetes is like going and compiling your own Linux kernel. No <laughs> one does that. You're going to go download Ubuntu or SUSE or Red Hat, whatever it might be, you're going to use a distribution. And for Kubernetes, I think you should use a distribution. 
And then you should consider the things that are important to you in your specific scenario and then follow the guidelines that that distribution gives you in order to hit uh, that criteria in your particular situation. And, and more often than not, you probably will be running that in a VM is my guess. So I can I can confirm that uh, Photon OS is still being actively developed and um, downloaded and there, there's issues on the it's on github right and there's there's issues literally in the last few days that receive answers from the community so it's it's continuing to be a thing um yeah vmware contributes a lot back to the open source community they've they've always been a big contributor in it pat really i think took them down that path in his you know near decade running the company and so i'm not surprised to see that it's still alive and that people are consuming it still to this point in time but it's not really a product that you're going to hear from from your sales team right more than likely well they're not going to say definitely yeah. something in the community yeah um so um we, we we've covered a lot here uh, more along i think we've covered a lot of the a lot of the why um you know why you know why we should care about kubernetes why we should care about um, the, um, the data protection of Kubernetes. And I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I'd like to say that no one's arguing we shouldn't protect the data in uh, state, uh, stateful <laughs> containers and state, obviously stateful apps. The, those I don't think are getting, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? No, no one's arguing that. It, it, am I correct there? I wish you were, um, but unfortunately, <laughs> there's that's that's sort of where the conversation goes, right? And and no one argues it once they've they've heard the conversation. But the assumption that everything that lives inside of Kubernetes will be built a certain way is the fallacy. You know, we we're humans, and we don't always build things the exact right way. We, I mean, there are still things that I see people do within VMware that you say to yourself, I feel like we stopped doing that ten years ago. Um, but we continue to do it. And so that is going to be true of Kubernetes, especially as people are trying to figure it out. Uh, so as you're learning, building uh, new things, especially as you're asking developers, by the way, to define their applications in YAML files, meaning when I mentioned the manifest file earlier, what I really meant was just a YAML file. And that is asking you to have a developer write something in a human-readable format. And speaking as a form- former developer, we are not humans. So that, that is counterintuitive to everything that they want to do. He said it, ladies and gentlemen, not me. He said that, it. That's right. I'll, and I'll continue to say it. Uh, I, you know, SDKs are the preferred communication of, of a developer. And to be able to create those variables out of an SDK, those are coming. They exist today, actually. You can do it at Amazon. You can do it on-premises uh, with some open source tools that are working on that. So uh, those those things right there alone are just a huge change in the way that we develop and compile applications. And I promise you, uh, stuff is going to break. Although if you're going down this path, you should, you should expect things to break. And you should handle it gracefully when they do break mm-hmm. because it's just a part of the world we live in now. But yeah, I, I think that once you get to the point of explaining the way stateful sets work, and the fact that you are going to run things that are stateful into Kubernetes, especially if you're adopting something and you are a, I'll just say, well-established business. If you've been around for a while, you have state all over the place. Right. And you need to be able to maintain it. And uh, and so this is a very, very important thing 
for most businesses out there. And I guess I should also point this out. You do not have to use Kubernetes and you do not have to use containers. If you are saying to yourself, like if I ever ask you, okay, why are we having this conversation? So if you contact SHI and you want to talk about containers, there's a high likelihood that I will be involved in that conversation. I will ask you this question. I will ask, why are we having this conversation today? And if your answer is, well, because I feel like this is just the direction we need to go, because this is where things are going, I'm going to stop you right there. We need a purpose and a reason for defining applications in a completely different way whenever what you're currently doing very well may be working just fine for you. VMs will continue to exist. Physical servers will continue to exist. Uh, and so it, it don't move to Kubernetes without a really good reason uh, first. That just would be because my people tell you to, recommendation. Yeah, just because yeah. someone tells you to move does not mean it's a good option for you. Absolutely. And I think also the other thing is learning Kubernetes, it's a different skill set, right? Just like moving from VMware to an on-premises to the public cloud, right? It's not so much the technology itself, but it's like the security aspects, the best practices, cost optimization, everything else comes into picture as well. It really does. You know, the the thing that you'll you'll find very quickly when you start leveraging Kubernetes is that if you weren't automating things before, you will be auto automating <laughs> things in the future. It's just it's just a part of it. Um, DevOps is real, by the way. Um, it is a it is a fun term that we like to say. Oh, it's a buzzwordy term. All of that stuff is real. DevOps, DevSecOps, FinOps, any of the things that's XXXX ops. Those things are real and, and the terminology exists for a reason. And I can tell you, once you start leveraging Kubernetes and you start focusing on what I call the developer experience, you will start to need to provide a different way of managing applications. It will involve automation and it will involve skilling up because you're going to need people in your operations team that can read YAML files and understand some of that. They may not need to write code um, or maybe they will. Uh, but they they definitely will need to understand it and, and understand what the developers are working on and enable them to develop different things. I actually wrote a blog post on this very topic last week. <laughs> uh, it's not published yet, but it will be once uh, it gets striked down by our editors. <laughs> so that's, uh, <clears throat> that's a topic I'm big on, enabling the developer experience. Uh, and once you start empowering them, they're going to make you change a lot of stuff. And automation is going to be a part of it as you know, use Kubernetes, just watch what happens. I guarantee it. All right. Well, I think we've covered enough for one podcast. I want to thank you, Russ, for being on today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Russ. I definitely enjoy these talks, especially as we think about what our customers doing and what's sort of coming down the pipeline next. And what should I be learning about too? It always helps to have insights from someone who's out in the field talking to customers so of course everything will change in a week <laughs> so remember that <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so before we actually get this this podcast published everything will be different that's great pretty much okay yep. that's all right the scenario i said hit me up on twitter and we can we can continue to talk through the the horrible things that go on in the world of technology and as they change before we even finished our first script that we're trying to write. <laughs> and what what is your Twitter handle? I forgot to mention that. Oh, it's uh, it's R Cantwell, but the E is a three. So my name, but the E is a three. You just trying to be cool? Uh, you know, when I was a <clears throat> a young lad, and uh, I I really liked the number three. I used to shoot a lot of three point shots in basketball, and I used to tell people it was a warning. So that uh, that E being a three is both elite speak because I'm a gamer, and it is a warning. <laughs> you see me on the basketball court. Okay. I'm shooting it from. 
real far. <laughs> oh, Steph Curry before it was cool. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Well, we thank Russ for coming on. And I uh, want to, again, thank our listeners, because without you, we would have no purpose. And remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all. There was a file, but I deleted it. To pay your backup system isn't worth a spade. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space. It'll be completely done Maybe one day it